Welcome. This is the sixth Head and Neck uh, podcast. This is on the cranial nerves and the brainstem nuclei. Now, it's been mentioned in a previous podcast, receptive brain cells are arranged into functional groups. A developmental aspect of the brain stem mirrors that in the spinal cord. There's a separation into a dorsal ala lamina, which is the sensory afferent cells, and a ventral basal lamina, which is the motor efferent. With a third type of brain cell in each lamina, the branchial afferent and efferent cells of the cranial nerves supplying the derivatives of branchial arches lying between the cells of the two kinds. Those are sort of autonomic and visceral cells and the somatic cells. Uh, these are the central stations of the nerves of the pharyngeal arches, and that includes, therefore, the trigeminal, facial, glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves. And these cells reorient uh, more like an opened-out spinal cord with the motor cells lying medially and the sensory cells laterally and with the autonomic cells in between separating, therefore, as somatic motor nuclei to the orbit and tongue muscles, branchial motor uh, cells or nuclei to the branchial arch muscles in the way we've just defined them, and the visceral motor, which is the parasympathetic cardiac visceral muscles and glands, and the visceral and branchial afferents, which are taste, the somatic afferents, which are the trigeminal, and then the special somatic afferents, which are the eighth nerve. So that's a number of different ways of thinking of these things. In the brainstem, the motor nuclei are arranged according to the type of muscle supplied. There's ordinary somatic skeletal muscle of the head, for example, the orbit and tongue muscles, and these are akin to the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord, and they lie ventral to the floor of the fourth ventricle. And then, of course, you've got the crowding of 3, 4, 6, and 12. And then next are the striated muscles of mastication and facial expression, the pharynx and larynx, and that includes the motor nuclei of the trigeminal, the facial nerve nucleus and the nucleus ambiguous and the vagus, as well as the cranial part of the accessory. So this is another way of looking at the orientation of the brain stem. The visceral or parasympathetic motor nuclei are represented by the accessory ocular motor nucleus, the Eddinger-Westphal nucleus, the salivary nuclei, which is the nervous intermedius and glossopharyngeal nucleus, so that's the superior and inferior salivatory nuclei, and the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, which is cardiac muscle and also smooth muscle of the alimentary tract. And these three lines of nuclei effectively then retain their specific embryological relationships. So it's a rather complex way, but differential way, of looking at these um, different brainstem nuclei. From top to bottom is another way to look at it. You've got the third ocular motor nucleus plus the Eddinger-Westphal. You've got the fourth alongside the mesencephalic centre of proprioception of five, the motor nucleus of five, the main sensory nucleus of five, which is the chief nucleus for touch, and then you've got six, seven, and eight, the superior and inferior salivatory nuclei alongside the spinal nucleus of five, which is conveying pain and temperature. 
medial to lateral, you've then got the 12th nerve, the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, which includes 7, 9 and 10, the nucleus ambiguous, 9, 10 and 11, and below is the cardiorespiratory centre. So in order to clarify that, you should look from top to bottom of the brain stem in any particular atlas and from medial to lateral, but they're crowded in that particular way. I might provide an image of that on the Facebook site. Afferent nuclei of the brain stem from medial to lateral form the visceral, branchial and somatic afferents in the reverse order of the motor efferents. The motor groups are interrupted columns of nuclei, but the afferent columns are single nuclear masses instead. The visceral and the branchial afferents merge as the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, that's taste from 7, 9 and 10. But below, visceral afferents from the heart, lungs and viscera also include some afferents from 9 and 10. The somatic afferent is the sensory nucleus of 5, which has a different function, and that includes proprioception through the mesencephalic nucleus, the upper pontine part for touch, and pain and temperature in the lower pons and medulla, which is the spinal um, uh, nucleus of the trigeminal. The brainstem has a fourth column of sensory nuclei with no actual counterpart in the spinal cord, and these are, of course, the cochlea and vestibular nuclei of the vestibular cochlear nerve as a special somatic afferent laterally. So the structure of the spinal cord and the brainstem have some kind of afferent and efferent homology, but there are some differences as well. Now, I want to talk about summarising the cranial nerves. This was really a brief just discussion of the kind of topography, if you like, of the brainstem. Regarding the cranial nerves in general, the first two cranial nerves are more akin to outdrawn sensory parts of the CNS. It is, however, easier to trace the wider spread of 5, 9 and 10 from their brainstem nuclei to the periphery, a bit like you do with motor nerves. The idea of understanding a lesion implies that the nucleus is the least important part of the teaching, with importance of the course of the nerve and the regional effects of uh, nerve loss or nerve lesion damage. There is, however, an appreciated uniform pattern uh, of these cranial nerves. There's an origin, the nucleus, its position and the nature of its cell bodies, any special features obviously in transit of the brain stem, a point of attachment at the surface of the brain stem, the course through the basal cistern, the point of simultaneous perforation of the arachnoid and the dura, uh, where there are the ganglia of sensory nerves usually lying there, and the point of bony exit from the skull, with differences between the dura and the bone. Um, and then you've got the extracranial course and distribution of the nerve. So one can think of the cranial nerve a little bit more centrally than we normally do. We first need to recap on some of the anatomy of the brain stem again and then summarise the cranial nerve nuclei. The area of importance joins the cerebrum and the diencephalon with the spinal cord so that you've got the midbrain, the pons and the medulla. And one can check on images from any of the textbooks as you're listening to this if you so wish. This extends from just above the aperture of the tentorium cerebelli 
to the C1 vertebra below the foramen magnum, housing the laterally projecting cerebellum. Where the uppermost rootlets of C1 emerge, it changes its name then to the spinal cord. And the brainstem here is fibres and cells of ascending or descending nature, as in the spinal cord, with most of the cells aggregated into discrete nuclei. And those nuclei, as we've already said, include 3 to 12 cranial nerves, other named nuclei such as the colliculi, the red nucleus, the substantia nigra, the pontine nuclei, the olivary nuclei, and also the reticular formation, which includes cells which comprise the vital centres, cardiac and respiratory vasomotor. The anatomy of these tracts and cells are appreciated at uh, really typically several sections. We usually look at them at the upper and the lower midbrain, the upper and the lower pons, usually one through the upper and two through the lower medulla to provide a kind of basic macroscopic familiarity. Um, briefly, uh, the third and the fourth cranial nerve nuclei are in the midbrain. The motor nucleus of five, six and seven are in the pons. The three sensory nuclei of five are in the midbrain, pons and medulla. The eighth nerve nucleus overlaps with the junction of the pons and the medulla, lying partly, I would say, in each. The nuclei of 9, 10, 11 and 12 are in the medulla, and 11 obviously has a spinal point, or a spinal part, pardon me, which is derived from the cervical region of the spinal cord. Now, if we're looking at the midbrain, this connects the diencephalon and cerebrum to the pons, extending as a landmark from just above the dorsum cellae to a line that joins the apices of the petrous parts of the temporal bones. It passes through the temporal notch in its upper part, but most of it's in the posterior fossa. The pineal body, with the splenium of the corpus callosum, lies above it, as well as the superior colliculi. The uh, midbrain has a right and left cerebral peduncle, with the ventral base, the bassis pedunculi, and a dorsal tegmentum, Running through the latter uh, is the um, aqueduct of the midbrain, the aqueduct of Sylvius, which joins the third and the fourth ventricle. Dorsally, there are the inferior and the superior colliculi, with the superior lying below the pineal at the roof of the third ventricle behind the thalamus. I'm not here particularly going to discuss the brain. Um, that'll be left for um, uh, a, a later time. Um, uh, in a later series of podcasts. Lateral of the superior colliculus is the medial geniculate body, actually part of the thalamus. And so the third and the fourth cranial nerves, as I've stated, lead the brainstem at the midbrain, but in a rather complicated manner. The third leaves via the uh, crus ventrally on the midbrain between the posterior cerebral and superior cerebellar arteries, to reach the roof of the cavernous sinus. The fourth, however, leaves the dorsal surface of the midbrain just behind the inferior colliculus, and it is a bit unique. It's the smallest cranial nerve, the only one to emerge from the dorsal surface of the brainstem, and the only one to decussate within the brainstem. And it curls more around the peduncle and more laterally running just below the free edge of the tentorium, to enter the cavernous sinus.
the optic tract also curls around the peduncle at this level. Uh, you've got the posterior communicating artery joining the posterior cerebral and the internal cerebral. And for interest, the colliculi of the tectum house the reflex centres here for light and sound, with the grey matter around the aqueduct containing the nuclei of the third and fourth cranial nerves and the mesencephalic nucleus of five. The tegmentum here contains the red nucleus. The colliculi actually receive input from the retina and cochlea, and they project to the motor nuclei of spinal and cranial nerves as so-called tectobulbar and tectospinal tracts, which coordinate reflex movement of the eyes, the head, the body and the limb, either towards or away from lights and sounds. Just cranial to the superior colliculi, the pretectal nuclei are separately concerned with the pupillary reflex, which we've already covered in an earlier podcast. And that's higher at the junction of the midbrain and the diencephalon. The third cranial nerve nucleus is just ventral to the aqueduct, close to the midline, and is in line with the other somatic motor nuclei, 4, 6 and 12. And nearby is the Edinger-Westphal nucleus, the, you, could, you could call it the accessory ocular motor, just cranially with the third nerve emerging through the red nucleus on the medial side of the base of the peduncle. The fourth nucleus is caudal to the third nucleus, ventral to the aqueduct at the inferior colliculus level, and decussating with its fellow dorsal to the aqueduct behind the inferior colliculus. And just laterally is the mesencephalic nucleus of five, receiving proprioceptive fibres from the muscles supplied by the mandibular branch, the muscles of mastication, the muscles of the orbit and possibly even muscles of the tongue also uh, reflex here, and this part of the midbrain is supplied by the posterior cerebral and superior cerebellar arteries. If we're just broadly talking about these bits of the brainstem, we're talking then next about the pons. That's located as a broad mass of brain between the midbrain and the medulla, um, really sinking into the cerebellum as the middle cerebellar peduncles with only the fifth nerve emerging from the pons as a large sensory and a small motor root passing in the posterior cranial fossa over the groove of the apex of the petrous temporal bone to the cavum trigeminale in the middle cranial fossa. The pons lies against the clivus, it's separated by the subarachnoid pontine cistern and the basilar artery. The superior cerebellar artery curls around the upper lip of the pons with a labyrinthine artery to the internal auditory meatus. And the seventh and eighth nerve are at the pontomedullary junction. Dorsally, the pons is marked by the fourth ventricle. And in the dorsal part of the pons are the nuclei of five to eight and the salivatory nuclei. The motor nucleus of five is in the upper pons, as I've said, merging at the junction of the pons and middle cerebellar peduncle. Lateral to the motor nucleus of five is the sensory nucleus of five, that's to touch, where its caudal extension into the pons and lower medulla is the spinal nucleus of five. Superiorly is the mesencephalic part, as we've already said. In the lower pons is the sixth nerve near the midline, just below the floor of the fourth ventricle and it's overlain by part of the seventh nerve nucleus, and these combined form a swelling, the facial colliculus, with the seventh nerve nucleus lying away from the midline, the nucleus 
actually isn't part of the colliculus. Uh, it's only uh, including part of seven fibres in the colliculus. And alongside the seventh nerve nucleus is a collection of cells, the superior salivatory nucleus, which, as we know, goes to the submandibular and pterygopalatine ganglia via seven, with a lower or inferior salivatory nucleus just above the pontomedullary junction, and that's via the otic ganglion and the ninth nerve. The nuclei of the eighth nerve are separate, synapsing as the vestibular nuclei, and others join the medial longitudinal bundle, connecting with the extraocular nuclei and cervical anterior horn cells as part of a kind of vestibulo-ocular reflex. It's ventral grey matter near the aqueduct from the midbrain to the upper cervical spinal cord, which links the ventral nuclei with three, four, and six to coordinate sort of audiovisual reflexes and eye and head and neck movements turning towards sound. Cochlear nuclei are mostly medullary to the trapezoid part of the auditory pathway. The dorsal nucleus of the vagus and the nucleus of the tractus solitarius extend into the pons, but they're mostly medullary. The pons is supplied mainly by the pontine branches of the basilar artery with contributions from the superior cerebellar and anterior inferior cerebellar arteries. The venous return here is into the inferior petrosal sinus and the basilar venous plexus. We're just finishing off this area by talking about the medulla oblongata and then we'll get on to the cranial nerves which interests uh, I think probably more people. The medulla passes through the foramen magnum from a line joining the jugular tubercles of the occipital bone with the atlas. Lying in the groove of the cerebellum, the so-called vellecula, between the dorsal cerebellar hemispheres. And ventrally there's a midline groove with the pyramid on either side, the corticospinal fibres, and laterally is the olive, the inferior salivatory nucleus. Below the middle cerebellar peduncle is the lateral inferior cerebellar peduncle, and the last seven cranial nerves all have medullary attachments. So six emerges between the pons and the pyramid, seven is between the pons and the olive, and the nervous intermedius between the pons and the inferior cerebellar peduncle. Lateral to the olive are the rootlets of 9, 10, and the cranial portion of 11, and then 12 emerges by two rootlets, typically between the pyramid and the olive. One can see uh, typical diagrams of this, and I might post one of these on our um, site, but it's a kind of vertical representation of rootlets off the medulla. On the dorsal side of the medulla, the area is formed by the floor of the fourth ventricle and is referred to as the open medulla. The lower closed part of the medulla contains the spinal canal with the gracile and cuneate elevations on the dorsal surface. The dorsal nucleus of the vagus contains motor cell bodies for cardiac and visceral muscle and for secretomotor glands. The sensory cells more properly belong to the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, receiving its upper part, in its upper part really taste fibres from the corda tympani, the lingual branch uh, of the uh, ninth nerve and the internal laryngeal branch of the tenth nerve. And below there's an input from thoracic and abdominal visceral nine and ten fibres. These are the baroreceptors and chemoreceptors. And that links via the reticular formation with cough, 
sneeze, gag and vomiting reflexes. The nucleus ambiguous contains motor cell bodies from the skeletal muscles of the larynx, the soft palate, the pharynx and the upper esophagus, all distributed via the vagus except for uh, nine which uh, really is motor to the stylopharyngeus and then the upper fibres go to the palate, middle fibres to the pharynx and the esophagus and lower fibres to the larynx. The spinal nucleus of five is laterally lying in the medulla, it's quite long and it goes to the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, at least at that level, let's put it that way. The reticular formation coordinates the extrapyramidal system, sensory input to the thalamus, autonomic activity, circadian rhythms, endocrine secretion, and so forth. The medulla is supplied ventrally by the basilar and vertebral arteries, and laterally by the posterior inferior cerebellar artery, the PCAR. The anterior spinal branch of the vertebral supplies the pyramid, medial lemniscus and the twelfth nerve, leading to a medullary syndrome, which is paralysis of the ipsilateral tongue, hemiplegia with loss of touch and kinesthetic sense contralaterally if that pica is um, occluded, a so-called distinguishing lateral medullary syndrome or pica syndrome, which damages the nucleus ambiguous damaging the vocal fold, pharyngeal muscles and palate on that side, a combination of dysphonia and dysphagia, loss of the uncrossed spinal tract of five, leads to a loss of pain and temperature on the same side of the face and in the crossed spinal lemniscus on the opposite side of the body. So there's interruption also of the descending sympathetic pathway and an ipsilateral Horner's syndrome. So all of these things combined, that's quite a, a, a lot to absorb, but all of these combined are part of the PCAR or lateral medullary syndrome. Um, vestibular nuclear involvement typically also in this syndrome leads to vertigo and nystagmus with some nausea and vomiting. Um, if I get an opportunity I'll leave a cross section of the midbrain at the inferior colliculus level, upper pons, lower pons, open medulla, closed medulla, along with a longitudinal section that could be added to our um, uh, little bit on uh, the Facebook section. Now I wanted to talk about a summary of the cranial nerves and nerve nuclei which I think interests um, more people uh, rather than this topography of the brain stem. To reiterate, there are direct somatic and branchial motor branches Nuclei for cardiac and visceral muscles send their branches out via autonomic ganglia. Lesions also may affect 1, 2, 3, 6 and 7. But tumours, ischemia and aneurysms can also affect um, these nerves to produce lesions. So we're going to start with the olfactory nerve, number 1. This is ventrally attached as usually 20 or so separate olfactory nerves passing up through the cribriform plate of the ethmoid and ending in the olfactory bulb from the specialised neuroepithelium in the upper nose. The first neurons are scattered bipolar cells. They synapse in the olfactory bulb on the mitral cells, as they're called, which then pass in the olfactory tract to the anterior perforated substance and the uncus as lateral and medial olfactory stree. 
head injury and uh, fractures of the anterior cranial fossa are of course very common causes of anosmia and most is also an affectation really of the nasal mucosa rather than any particularly specific neurologic disease. We don't tend to go into one to a great extent beyond uh, this simple discussion and anosmia. So let's move to two, the optic nerve. Nasal fibres decussate in the chiasm, which is second-order ganglion retinal cells, and so the right optic tract contains fibres, therefore, from the right half of each retina, the nasal field of the right eye and the temporal field of the left eye. The optic tract is supplied by the anterior choroidal and the posterior communicating arteries. The chiasm and the intracranial part of the optic nerve is supplied by the anterior cerebral artery. In the orbit, the arterial supply, of course, as we know, is by the ophthalmic and distally by the central artery of the retina. So these are specific occlusions, therefore, will affect the optic nerve and vision. The optic tract, once that forms after the chiasm, then passes around the midbrain to the cerebral peduncles to three destinations. The lateral geniculate body and the thalamus for relay in the visual cortex, the pretectal nucleus for pupillary constriction, as we've already said, and the superior colliculus for the kind of body reflexes I was talking about earlier. The uh, nerve is, in a sense, not a strict nerve, but rather a kind of outgrowth from the CNS, and therefore it's enclosed in the meninges and the subarachnoid space, and it's an area we, we can visually examine with the ophthalmoscope, living vessels and the subarachnoid space uh, and uh, the effects of raised intracranial pressure. Obviously, a complete lesion of two leads to complete blindness. Compression of the optic chiasm, on the other hand, leads to bitemporal hemianopia for the reasons we've mentioned in terms of the way the nerve fibres decussate. Lesions of the lower fibres of the left optic radiation, uh, for example, can occur. You can get an abscess in the temporal lobe that would produce that, or a right upper quadrantic hemianopia. You can get a lesion of the left optic tract, which classically leads to a right homonymous hemianopia. Lesions in the upper fibres of the left optic radiation, they would occur from a parietal lobe lesion and would be associated with a right lower quadrantic homonymous hemianopia. As I've said, lesions in the lower fibres of the left optic radiation uh, would lead to a right upper quadrantic hemianopia. Um, a lesion in the anterior visual cortex, which could occur from a posterior cerebral artery occlusion, would lead to a right homonymous hemianopia, but with macular sparing, because that area of macular representation is supplied by the middle cerebral artery. And traumatic damage to the tip of the left occipital lobe, the macular area, would typically have a right homonymous macular defect. So as we're going further and further back from the optic nerve, you're then getting different types of individual lesions based on the anatomy. Uh, although I've covered it in an earlier podcast, I'll reiterate the nature of the pupillary reflexes at this point to remind people. Pupillary size is obviously an interplay between the parasympathetic and sympathetic function. In the direct reflex, the optic tract leads back to the pretectal nucleus, stimulating the eddying of Westphal nucleus on both sides. The crossover of the chiasm also ensures that both pretectal nuclei are stimulated 
And interesting, the pupillary fibres lie on the dorsal surface of the third nerve with a blood supply in the sheath rather than the nerve, so that they're susceptible to pressure, in a sense, more than ischemia. And that's the feature, obviously, of raised intracranial pressure affecting pupillary function. They're also part of the accommodation convergence reflex, or what's called the near reflex, and that's actually a different pathway that doesn't involve the pretectal nuclei, but does involve the Edinger vestphal nucleus with medial rectus convergence. The third nerve, the ocular motor nerve, is somatic, striated ocular muscles and visceral motor to smooth muscle in the eye, with the Edinger vestphal, or the accessory as it's called, accessory ocular motor nucleus as it's called, which lies cranial to the somatic nucleus. And it passes forwards from the midbrain just above the pons, that's the third nerve, between the posterior cerebral and superior cerebellar artery below, and lateral to the posterior communicating artery just below the free margin of the tentorium cerebelli, passing the interpeduncular cistern below the floor of the third ventricle. And it pierces the arachnoid and dura at the roof of the cavernous sinus at the carotid siphon. And this explains why a posterior communicating artery aneurysm will lead to a third nerve palsy. It's attached to the lateral wall of the cavernous sinus above the abducent nerve, picking up the sympathetic fibres from the carotid plexus, which are going to the smooth muscle part of the levator palpebrae superioris. At the anterior pole of the cavernous sinus, the third nerve splits actually into a superior and an inferior root inside the muscle ring running through the superior orbital fissure between the nasociliary uh, and the abducent nerve medially. Um, so if we remember there, the superior orbital fissure really between the lesser and greater wings of the sphenoid is just a way of communicating the middle cranial fossa with the orbit. And of course, we remember uh, lazy French tart sit naked in anticipation from lateral to medial across the superior orbital fissure so that the uh, S is the superior division of the third nerve, the I is the inferior division. And so um, that will sit uh, between, if you like, the uh, nasociliary nerve and the abducent nerve. Um, I would say then that the more extraconal structures obviously include the lacrimal, frontal and trochlear nerves to remind us. The superior division supplies the sympathetic system to the levator palpebrae superioris uh, and the somatics to the superior rectus. The inferior division breaks into three branches, medial rectus and inferior rectus, and then the nerve to the inferior oblique, with all of the edinger vestphal fibres in the proximal part of this branch, which then leave to enter the ciliary ganglion by the short ciliary nerves. If you've got a third nerve palsy, then you'll have obviously complete ptosis, You've got to lift the eye up in order to see it, see its disposition in the pupil. And when you lift the lid up, or lift the lid at any rate, with the lid lifted up, the eye is looking down and out due to the unopposed actions of the lateral rectus and the superior oblique, with a kind of diminishing diplopia if you try and look outwards. The pupil is, of course, dilated, it's midriatic, and it doesn't react to light or an accommodation. The consensual reflex in the opposite eye is preserved for obvious reasons in the way we've described it. 
Now, the fourth nerve, or the trochlear nerve, is somatic, of course, only to the superior oblique, and it emerges dorsally behind the inferior colliculus, just below the free edge of the tentorium cerebelli, between the posterior cerebral artery and the superior cerebellar artery. Piercing the roof of the cavernous sinus just behind three, it's crossed medially by three so that it's the uppermost and lateral nerve entering the superior orbital fissure, lateral to the tendinous ring, passing over the labata palpare superioris to enter the superior oblique muscle. Now, a lesion in four, you really cannot effectively look downwards when the eye is turned in with diplopia. So, for example, particularly reading or going downstairs, this becomes very problematic. The inferior oblique extorts the eye slightly, and to compensate, patients will often tilt their head back towards the opposite shoulder to kind of realign their visual axes. The good eye will often intort a little to compensate for this diplopia. The fifth nerve, or trigeminal nerve. Now, the um, fifth nerve is a bit complicated, and I'd recommend that you sort of draw that out on a piece of paper as we go through the individual branches. The motor nucleus, to get to the central aspect, is in the upper pons, as we know, branchial for the muscles of the first branchial arch. The sensory part is somatic and divided into three for the length of the brain stem and into the upper segments of the spinal cord. The mesencephalic nucleus is in the extent of the midbrain in the periaqueductal grey matter, those are the first order neurons, and a proprioceptive, as we said before, for the muscles of mastication, but also for cranial nerves 3, 4, 6, 7 and possibly 12. The main sensory nucleus is in the upper pons, uh, which are second-order neurons for touch. There's also, as we've said, that is the uh, chief nucleus. The spinal nucleus is like an onion skin, and it's an inverted nerve supply working really backwards from the mouth with the inferior ophthalmic uh, representation. So it's a kind of inverted um, uh, position. The motor root emerges slightly cranially and medial to the large sensory root, and the dura fuses in such a way that the posterior roots of the ganglion are actually, that's the trigeminal ganglion, are bathed in CSF uh, as the first two branches, which is V1 and V2, pass forward in the lateral wall of the cavernous sinus. And the mandibular division, of course, is then separable, passing inferiorly down with the motor root via the foramen ovale. So we start with V1. This picks up sympathetic fibres from the cavernous plexus for the dilator pupillae, and it gives off uh, meningeal branches, which are tentorial branches, and then it becomes the lacrimal, frontal and nasociliary. Now the lacrimal is joined by the zygomaticofacial nerve, as we know, part of the parasympathetic nervous system, that hitchhikes across to the lacrimal nerve and supplies the lacrimal gland. And it's a lateral, there's also a lateral palpable branch, which is cutaneous, as well as palpable and ocular surfaces of the lateral conjunctiva. They're innovated sensory that way as well. The frontal nerve is a pretty big nerve, and that runs over the top of the levator palpebrae superioris, 
where it becomes, of course, the supraorbital nerve, which is part of the sensation, not to forget, of the frontal sinus, but also of the upper eyelid and conjunctiva, and the nerve runs right up to the skin of the vertex of the scalp, and the uh, supratrochlear, which runs towards the forehead uh, midline up to about the hairline. The third nerve of this region of V1 is the nasociliary nerve, and that's sensory to the eyeball and the paranasal sinuses, and to the mucous membrane of the nasal cavity and the external skin of the nose. And this nerve, the nasociliary, carries the sympathetic fibres to the dilator pupillae, as we've mentioned uh, many times, and changes its name to then become the anterior ethmoidal, which innervates the anterior and middle ethmoidal air cells, and then descends alongside the cristigalli into the root of the nose, where it supplies the anterosuperior quadrant of the lateral wall and the segment of the nasal septum. And then it's known ultimately as the renamed external nasal nerve, which supplies the skin to the tip of the nose. One branch is also the so-called infratrochlear nerve, which supplies the skin and also the conjunctiva of the medial upper eyelid and the area below that on the skin on the bridge of the nose. The posterior ethmoidal nerve supplies uh, the posterior um, uh, ethmoidal air cells, and this runs via the posterior ethmoidal foramen, proximal to the takeoff of the infratrochlear nerve. And uh, there's also a supply of nerve supply, sensory nerve supply, to the adjacent sphenoid sinus. And it doesn't reach the nasal cavity. It can even be the posterior ethmoidal uh, nerve absent. So we've got the lacrimal, the frontal, frontal, and this rather complicated nasociliary nerve. Other branches from the nasociliary nerve include a communicating branch, as we know, to the ciliary ganglion. It's the so-called sensory root of the ganglion, and that passes as the short ciliary um, postganglionic parasympathetic pupilloconstrictory fibres, and there's the long ciliary nerves, which are sensory to the eyeball, including the cornea but not the conjunctiva. And these are usually double, entering the sclera independently, carrying the sympathetics picked up from the ophthalmic nerve in the cavernous sinus to the dilator pupillae. And so these are sensory, as we've said, to the eye, like the short ciliary nerves, including the cornea, uh, but not the conjunctiva. So we've got this kind of reverse sensory supply uh, between the cornea and the conjunctiva. So if you're continuing drawing, we want to get to V2. Uh, obviously, V1 has made its way out through the superior orbital fissure. But V2, uh, then, is the maxillary nerve. And that's the nerve of the maxilla, or really the middle third of the face, running in the upper lateral cavernous sinus through into the foramen rotundum, that's part of the roof, of the pterygopalatine fossa, and it runs past the inferior orbital fissure to end as the infraorbital nerve. Now it supplies the nasal mucosa, the palate, the upper teeth, the lacrimal glands and the skin of the face between the eye and the mouth. There's a middle meningeal branch that supplies the dura of the front half of the middle cranial fossa, uh, and um, there are various particular connections, ganglionic connections, 
with uh, branches, and these include nasal connections, and they come as the nasopalatine and the posterior superior nasal, palatine connections, the greater running forward onto the hard palate, and anything running backward onto the lesser palate called uh, onto the soft palate called lesser, a pharyngeal connection which runs backwards via the palatovaginal canal, and orbital connections. So the pterygopalatine fossa, as we've stated previously, therefore has a join to the nose, the face, the palate, and the pharynx. And because it's a relay station for the maxillary vessels, for the autonomic nervous system, and for sensory V2, which is what we're talking about now, all of these things are relayed to those areas as combinations. And so there is going through to the nose via the sphenopalatine foramen, down to the palate by the descending palatine canal, out into the pharynx by the palatopharyngeal canal, and off into the infraorbital region as a termination. So it's a relay station for the autonomic nervous system, as we've said, which is remarkable in this sense in that the sympathetic and parasympathetic join together as the video nerve. It's a relay station for sensory V2 and via the pterygomaxillary fissure to the depths of the face for the maxillary vessels. The nasopalatine nerve used to be called actually the long sphenopalatine nerve, enters the sphenopalatine foramen, crosses the roof of the nose and supplies the postero-inferior half of the nasal septum, goes through the incisive canal and fossa into the substance of the hard palate, supplying the gum behind the two incisor teeth. The posterior superior lateral, which was formerly called the short sphenopalatine, and the medial nasal nerves supply the superior quadrant of the lateral nasal wall and the nasal septum. And so the areas correspond. We've got the anterior ethmoidal, which is superior, and that then becomes the external nasal nerve, as we've said. We've got the posterior ethmoidal, which is superior. We've got the posterior lateral nasal nerve, the greater palatine nerve, which is postero-inferior, also including the maxillary sinus and the rest of the hard palate, and then the lesser palatine, which passes through a series of foramina and supplies the soft palate and the tonsil. Brazil also, as I mentioned, a pharyngeal branch, which supplies the mucous membrane of the nasopharynx to the level of the opening of the auditory tube and the tubal tonsil. There's a zygomatic nerve which arises in the pterygopalatine fossa, which, as we know, enters the inferior orbital fissure running along the lower lateral wall of the orbit, and that carries the postganglionic parasympathetic pseudo- or secretomotor fibres to the lacrimal gland, and it hooks across from V2 and jumps onto the lacrimal nerve. The zygomaticofacial nerve also supplies the local skin. There's a zygomaticotemporal nerve which pierces the temporalis fascia and supplies the skin above the zygomatic arch. That's the hairless skin temple. And there's also, finally, as we know, posterior superior alveolar nerves or alveolar nerves in the pterygopalatine fossa, and that divides to exit the pterygomaxillary fissure with two entering the posterior wall of the maxilla above the maxillary tuberosity and innervating the maxillary sinus and the three-molar tooth, um, except perhaps part of a buccal root of the first molar. And the third branch stays outside the maxilla, piercing the buccinator and supplying the gum of the vestibule alongside the three molars. So one of the other nerves, as we've said, of V2 is these 
posterior superior alveolar nerves. They're important for the dentist to get at in the upper wisdom teeth. The whole area finishes, as we've said, as the infraorbital nerve, which does supply the maxillary sinus. It gives rise also to middle superior alveolar nerves and anterior superior alveolar nerves. These can sometimes come as a bunch. There are variations, and sometimes they'll come from the pterygopalatine fossa far back, but usually these are branches of the infraorbital nerve. The middle superior alveolar nerve does what it says, innervating two premolars and the anterior buccal root of the first molar, and the anterior superior alveolar nerve, the canine and the two incisors. And that goes as far as the inferior part of the nose, including part of the nasolacrimal duct and nasal floor, ending on the nasal septum. And it emerges, of course, from the infraorbital foramen between the levator labii superioris and the levator angulioris. It may even communicate peripherally with parts of the facial nerve. Uh, these are the so-called palpable branches of the infraorbital nerve, so they are to the lower eyelid and conjunctiva. There are labial branches to the upper lip skin and mucous membrane, and that goes to the midline to the gum of the second premolar tooth. It's a great uh, block that can be done, the infraorbital nerve block from inside, if you've got a little laceration of the lip or something near there that needs to be done. It's an excellent internal infraorbital nerve block, very much underutilised. It'll go as far as the central incisor, sometimes can even cross over onto the contralateral side. And so you just lift up the gum, put a needle into that area as a dental block until you hit the maxillary sinus or the maxilla, and then just walk it forward and that provides a perfect infraorbital nerve block. Very much underutilised, should be used a lot more in emergency rooms. The third nerve is, of course, running down the foramen ovale. That's the mandibular division of the trigeminal, or V3, as it's so commonly called. And that passes into the infratemporal fossa between the upper head of the lateral pterygoid and the tensor pilati muscle, dividing into a leash as an anterior group of nerves, which are all motor except one, and a posterior group, which are all sensory except one. The main trunk provides two branches before it breaks up, a meningeal branch, which some people call, or some books call, the nervous spinosis via the foramen ovale or the foramen spinosum. This can be a bit variable sometimes. And it supplies part of the cartilaginous portion of the eustachian tube. It runs posteriorly to supply the mastoid antrum and the mastoid air cells. And the second nerve here is the nerve to the medial pterygoid, which is an interesting nerve. It has a branch close to the otic ganglion, which supplies the two tensor muscles, tensor tympani and tensor pilati. There are six anterior branches, two nerves to the lateral pterygoid, which are one per head, two deep temporal nerves, and the nerve to masseter. So all of these are the muscles, if you like, of the motor component to the muscles of mastication. If we look at it according to Hilton's law, like the nerve to masseter, that gives a branch to the temporomandibular joint. And just to remind you there, Hilton's law states that the motor nerve to a muscle tends to give a branch of supply to the joint on which the muscle acts and another branch to the skin over the joint. The buccal nerve, not to be confused with the buccal branch of the facial nerve, runs between the two heads of the lateral pterygoid and it supplies the mucosa over the buccinator, the inner aspect of the cheek, below the zygomatic arch and the vestibular gum 
of the three mandibular molar teeth. It also, as we know, carries parasympathetic pseudo or secretomotor fibres for little buccal and molar glands. But that's the only sensory part of that motor root which supplies the inner cheek. The posterior branches are three in number and they're all sensory, as I've said, except for one. And these are biggish nerves, the auricular temporal nerve, the inferior alveolar, or we used to call it the inferior dental nerve, and the lingual nerve. And they're all separable, running forwards from one another as you've taken out the zygomatic arch to look at the base of the skull and the infratemporal fossa. In order to get that view, by the way, of the infratemporal fossa, you've got to remove the zygomatic arch as close to the orbit as you can and as back as far as the zygomatic temporal extension or suture so that the more zygomatic arch you remove, the greater the room in there. You've got to also remove the coronoid process with its insertion of temporalis and uh, in general you may have to remove part of the lateral pterygoid muscle so that you can see where the maxillary artery is running and also these terminal branches of the trigeminal as they're coming out of the foramen ovale at the base of the skull. The three sensory ones, as I've said, are the auriculotemporal. This has two roots which envelop, of course, the middle meningeal artery. Usually you can see that artery running up from the first portion of the maxillary artery just as it's run through to the foramen spinosum. Uh, the auricular temporal picks up the postganglionic fibres from the otic ganglion destined for the parotid gland, and it's deep to the neck of the mandible and is sensory to the TMJ, supplying, as we know, the parotid. We've gone through that also with sensory fibres and dividing into an auricular branch which supplies the EAM, the external auditory neatus, and the external auricle above that, and a temporal branch over the root of the zygomatic process supplying the hairy skin of the scalp. That's the area of hair that typically first grays. The inferior alveolar or inferior dental nerve can be seen pretty readily. It's running into the substance of the mandible and it lies on the medial pterygoid between the mandible and a little ligament called the sphenomandibular ligament. It enters the mandibular foramen in front of the inferior alveolar artery and vein. Now, just before it gives off the nerve to mylohyoid, which actually pierces that little sphenomandibular ligament, lying between the ramus and the medial pterygoid, and running between the mylohyoid and the anterior belly of digastric to supply both, just before it gets to the mandibular foramen, that's where that little nerve runs through, the nerve to mylohyoid. As I say, it supplies the mylohyoid muscle and the anterior belly of digastric. The anterior belly of digastric doesn't get a Guernsey. It doesn't get a specific name. The inferior alveolar nerve itself, running in the substance of the mandible after it's gone through the mandibular foramen, supplies the posterior five teeth. That's three molars and two premolars. And it terminates as the incisive branch, canine and both incisors, with some central overlap. And there's then the mental nerve, which runs out by the mental foramen to the lower lip, both surfaces of that, the vermilion surface and the skin, and the midline gum to the second premolar. Um, and uh, I would say there's slight overlap there in the midline. There's also some otic ganglion fibres, as we know, to labial glands. So we've just got the inferior dental nerve, the final nerve running on the inside of the mandible, it's a, a more slender nerve, is the lingual nerve. These can get confused, but if you trace these nerves down, 
the inferior dental goes into the substance of the mandible, the lingual nerve runs more medially and behind the mandible. And it's joined, of course, here by the corda tympani just below the skull base. It curves on the medial pterygoid about a centimetre in front of the inferior alveolar nerve, but passing medially under the free lower border of the superior constrictor, and it lies above the mylohyoid, medial to the mandible, just below the last molar tooth. Giving off a little gingerbread branch, it supplies the lingual gum to the midline. It swerves on the hyoglossus around the submandibular duct, and it's something we've mentioned before, so it's running deep to mylohyoid on the substance of the hyoglossus, and then it's uh, really um, just really got a complicated relationship with the submandibular duct, which typically it swings around and then uh, underneath, so it's sort of gripping the submandibular duct. And it swerves, as I said, around the submandibular duct to supply the anterior two-thirds of the tongue with both sensation and taste. Uh, conditions affected here anatomically include, of course, trigeminal neuralgia, or so-called tic douloureux, herpes zoster, Sturge-Weber syndrome. They've all got an anatomic link specifically to component parts, uh, V1, 2 and 3, of the trigeminal nerve. Uh, I don't think we need to go into those conditions, but they're anatomically, in a sense, anatomically based. And of course, the lingual nerve have, has a particular association with the submandibular ganglion, uh, as we know, usually uh, held by two components, both the uh, pre- and post-ganglionic or white and grey rami communicantes. Six, the abducent nerve. That's the lower pons coming out as a somatic motor nucleus near the seventh nerve, which overlies it as the so-called facial colliculus, which we briefly mentioned, emerging at the lower border of the pons above the pyramid of the medulla. And the six enters the pontine cistern above the anterior inferior cerebellar artery and against the pons to pierce the dura on the clivus just above the jugular tubercle entering the inferior petrosal sinus at the apex of the petrous temporal bone between the two layers of dura mater. Then it enters the cavernous sinus by bending forward under the small petroclinoid ligament, uh, running really from uh, medial uh, to lateral in the superior orbital fissure to enter the cone of muscles and then the lateral rectus. Uh, obviously in the lesion of this, the eye cannot look outwards and is turned in by the um, unopposed action of the medial, superior and inferior recti, which is part of the ocular motor nerve. It is, uh, however, because of its long, rather circuitous course, uh, a non-localising sign of raised intracranial pressure. The seventh nerve. Uh, I've perhaps added a schematic figure to our Facebook site but that includes the motor root for the second branchial arch with visceral efferents for the submandibular gland and the sublingual gland, the lacrimal glands, the glands in the nose, palate and pharynx, visceral afferents for taste through the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and soft palate, a very small area of somatic afferent near the skin of the external auditory meatus, which is covered by the facial nerve, and the tympanic membrane. And knowledge of these anatomies obviously allows an anatomical understanding of very specific lesions. The facial nerve nucleus uh, really 
is located in the reticular formation of the lower ponds where the fibres make a genue on the surface of the uh, abducent nucleus emerging from the olive. The secreta matter nucleus of the nervous intermedius is actually the superior salivatory nucleus near the seventh nucleus. The sensory nucleus of the tractus solitarius is medullary, receiving the central processes of taste cell bodies in the geniculate ganglion with cell bodies of sensation in the ear and the cell bodies in the ganglion also passing to the fifth nucleus. The nervous intermedius emerges at the lower border of the pons with the inferior cerebellar peduncle near the eighth cranial nerve entering the internal acoustic meatus via the pontocerebellar angle and the pontine cistern. So this in the inner ear then takes a genu or a knee bend to form the so-called geniculate ganglion, which are the cell bodies of the afferent fibres. And then it runs back in the middle ear near the lateral semicircular canal and deep to the antrum, emerging out from there from the stylomastoid foramen as a pure motor nerve. The intracranial branch and the petrous temporal bone include the greater petrosal nerve, uh, the tympanic branches, the nerve to starpedius, and the corda tympani. Now the greater petrosal nerve, a branch of the nervous intermedius, is secretomotor to the lacrimal gland, but also to the glands of the palate and nose and pharynx, with a few taste fibres to the palate, with cell bodies, as we've said, in the geniculate ganglion. And it joins the deep petrosal nerve, which is the sympathetics coming from the superior cervical ganglion, and parasympathetic activity then synapses in the pterygopalatine ganglion to innovate, along with V2 and the sympathetic nervous system, the five territories that we mentioned of the ganglion, the nasal septum, the lateral nasal wall, the paranasal sinuses, the hard and soft palate, and the nasopharynx. The lacrimal supply in the V2 to V1 jump uh, has already been mentioned. Now, continuing with the facial nerve, there are some small tympanic branches which are sensory, and they join the tympanic plexus in the middle ear with some sort of drifting to the auriculotemporal territory near the skin of the external auditory meatus. There is at this level also the nerve to starpedius that's given off in the facial canal that reaches the muscle via a minute canaliculus. We've got the corda tympani, um, which is secretomotor and taste, and that leaves in the facial canal. It passes through the posterior wall of the middle ear near the neck of the malleus, and it emerges at the so-called petrotympanic fissure and grooves the medial aspect of the spine of the sphenoid to join the lingual nerve just above the lateral pterygoid muscle. And then finally we come into the extracranial branches of seven, not to forget the posterior auricular nerve, which supplies the occipital belly of occipitofrontalis, the nerves of the posterior belly of digastric and the stylohyoid, which we can't sort of independently test, but they are innovated by the facial nerve because those are structures that come from the second branchial arch, and the nerve of the second branchial arch is the facial nerve, the artery of the second branchial arch is the facial artery, and this then finishes as the five muscles of facial expression. You place your hand along the side of your face, so the top one is obviously the temporal, 
the uh, index finger or the thumb perhaps is the temporal, the index finger is the zygomatic around the orbicularis oculi, the middle finger goes down to the buccal region and then you've got the ring finger going down to the mandibular region, that's the mandibular division of the tri- uh, of the facial nerve and then the uh, uh, one going below the neck which is the cervical branch of the facial nerve to innervate platysma. So we then need, if we know the anatomy and if we draw all of these areas, the facial nerve coming out of the pons, going through uh, really the middle ear, doing a genu then and coming out the stylomastoid foramen, then depending on what we find there, we can describe the individual lesions of the facial nerves as we go back. The one out the bottom, obviously, which affects all of the facial muscles of expression is the Bell's palsy, named actually after Sir Charles Bell, who was a Scottish anatomist but who lived in uh, London uh, and um, who was knighted for his uh, description of the uh, neuromuscular system in the early 1800s. If we've got Bell's palsy, that's a complete lower motor neuron, seventh nerve palsy, but that's combined with hyperacusis. Every sound seems to bother us a lot. Uh, we don't get a dampening by the stapedius uh, of the stapes. And this effect, particularly a combination of hyperacusis and a facial nerve palsy, places the lesion somewhere in the middle ear. If we go a little bit higher, we're going to have disruption of the corda tympani, and that's going to interfere particularly with the loss of taste of the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, and patients are going to notice that. Again, that's likely to be a lesion highish in the region of the middle ear. And then, of course, um, we wouldn't know, I don't think, uh, we wouldn't notice perhaps that there's reduced salivation, even though the submandibular and sublingual gland on that side had been denervated. We've still got our parotid gland, we've still got the contralateral major salivary glands, so we might not notice that the mouth is particularly dry. And then obviously, uh, as you go a bit further up, before the nerve gets really into the middle ear, um, uh, it's uh, coming off uh, uh, the pons, and here we get an affectation uh, of all the things we mentioned, a Bell's palsy, hyperacusis, loss of taste, maybe a slightly dryish mouth, but we'd now get loss of lacrimation because the greater petrosal nerve is disrupted and that's something that we would notice as well. And that kind of problem that can occur before the facial nerve gets into the inner ear, before it gets into the internal auditory meatus, is something at the cerebellopontine angle. That's a classical presentation of a cerebellopontine angle tumour. So we can tell particularly also... um, where these lesions are based on the expected anatomy. This we're also talking about is a lower motor neuron seventh rather than an upper motor neuron seventh, which occurs, for example, with a stroke. And here, typically, as we know, because there uh, is the bilateral innovation to the muscles of the brow, uh, then typically people can furrow their brow and that distinguishes between the upper motor neuron or so-called supranuclear facial palsy and a lower motor neuron seventh or Bell's-related palsy. Now, um, oh, Bell's is one example really of that. Now, the eighth nerve or the vestibulocochlear nerve, uh, it is really a special somatic for sound reception, wholly sensory for sound reception and balance. 
The cochlear nerve, of course, comes from the hair cells of the spiral organ, the so-called organ of corti, if we can remember back to our histology, and that enters the lower cerebellar peduncle at the lower pons. And these nerves run via the tegmentum to the inferior colliculus as reflex responses to sound. I think I mentioned that before, sort of body responses to sound via the lateral lemniscus with tectal reflexes for head and neck and body limb responsiveness to sound, then relaying in the medial geniculate body via the auditory radiation to the auditory area within the lateral sulcus. The vestibular nerve involves the neuroepithelium of the hair cells in the macule of the utricle and the saccule of the ampulla of the semicircular or ampullae of the semicircular canals. And this provides static and kinetic balance, respectively, relaying through the vestibular nuclei in the medial geniculate body. I don't think we need to know more about it than that unless people are doing an ENT fellowship. So I'm going to move on to the next area, which is the nine, the glossopharyngeal nerve. I might add a schematic um, to the uh, Facebook site. The nuclei are in the medulla and uh, lower pons, as the nerve, this one, is the nerve of the third branchial arch, but they also include visceral, branchial, a mixed sensory and motor and pseudomotor fibres, so quite a mixed nerve here. The branchial fibres are small, these come from the nucleus ambiguous, and uh, they're sort of almost symbolically only for one muscle of the glossopharyngeal nerve, and that's one motor component, the stylopharyngeus, and that's the third branchial arch. Secretomotor, of course, comes from the inferior salivatory nuclei in the lowest part of the pons, just rostral to the dorsal nucleus of the vagus, and they supply the parotid via the lesser petrosal nerve. So we've got greater and lesser petrosal nerves from facial and glossopharyngeal, not to mix those up. The taste, the posterior third of the tongue now, and afferents also from the carotid sinus and carotid bodies, enter really the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, You've also got sensation components from the palate, pharynx and posterior tongue, and they are linked via the spinal nucleus of the trigeminal, so they're going right down into the medulla. The nerve rootlets of nine emerge between the olive and the inferior cerebellar peduncle, and they join as a single nerve at the pontine system to enter the anterior compartment of the jugular foramen. So they're actually separated from the vagus and the accessory by a little septum of fibrous dura, but they're coming out from the pontomedullary region and out through the jugular foramen. The glossopharyngeal deeply notches the inferior border of the petrous bone just below the internal auditory meatus, and here as it perforates the dura and the arachnoid, it's actually distended as a little inferior uh, ganglion, quite separate from the little superior ganglion, and the cell bodies of the afferent nerves are in that region. The inferior or so-called petrous ganglion is part of what's called the fossula petrosa, but that's fairly small print. The superior and jugular ganglia are the proximal ganglia of the ninth and 10th cranial nerves, and the sensory neurons of these ganglia are all neural crest-derived. Uh, pseudo-unipolar neurons of the inferior ganglion of the glossopharyngeal nerve 
provide the sensory innervation to areas around the tongue and pharynx. So the inferior ganglion is largely an afferent sensory bit to that posterior third of the tongue, the pharynx, the palate, that sort of thing. More specifically, um, as we've said, just to uh, summarise, there's innovation of the taste buds of the posterior third of the tongue, general sensory innovation of the posterior third of the tongue, the soft palate, the palatine tonsils, the upper pharynx and the eustachian tube, and innovation of the baroreceptor cells in the carotid sinus, sometimes called the carotid sinus nerve, again another branch of the glossopharyngeal, and innovation of the so-called glomus type 1 chemoreceptor cells in the carotid body. So that, that particular nerve, the nerve of the carotid sinus, is both a kind of barrow and chemoreceptor element. I'll just come back to these ganglia as well and carry on a bit. The superior ganglion of the glossopharyngeal nerve is a sensory ganglion of the peripheral nervous system. The neurons in the superior ganglion of nine provide sensory innovation to the middle ear and the internal surface of the tympanic membrane. So you can see a slight separation between the superior and inferior ganglia, even though they have cell bodies as afferents there. The axons of these neurons branch from the glossopharyngeal nerve at the level of the inferior ganglion. They form a tympanic nerve, along with the preganglionic parasympathetic axons, as I've mentioned already, from the inferior salivatory nucleus. The tympanic nerve then travels through the inferior tympanic canaliculus to the tympanic cavity and forms a quite a complex tympanic plexus there. And from here, the sensory axons provide innovation of the middle ear, the inner aspect of the tympanic membrane. The parasympathetic axons pass from the tympanic plexus, as we've said before, as the lesser petrosal nerve on their way to the otic ganglion. And that passes between the sigmoid and inferior petrosal sinuses in the anterior part of the jugular foramen. And then the nerve descends between the internal and external carotid, curving around the lateral surface of the stylopharyngeus and passing into the pharynx between the superior and middle constrictor, um, deep to the hyoglossus and passing in towards the tongue, towards the valate papillae. So it's quite a deep nerve, it's a very small nerve, it is one of the structures that runs very high up between the internal and external carotids. There's only things with pharynx that do that, so the glossopharyngeal nerve, the pharyngeal branch of the vagus, both do that. And then it swings around the stylopharyngeus and runs actually deep to hyoglossus on the genioglossus, near the lingual artery and the uh, deep lingual vein. All right. The ninth nerve descends, as I've said, beneath the styloid process and the muscles connected with it to the lower border of its innervating muscle, the stylopharyngeus. It curves forward, forming an arch on the side of the neck and lying upon the stylopharyngeus and the middle pharyngeal constrictor. And from there it passes, as I've said, just to reiterate, under cover of the hyoglossus muscle, finally being distributed to the palatine tonsil the mucosal membrane of the fauces, the base of the tongue, the serous glands of the mouth. The tympanic branch passes into the middle ear via, as I've said, the tympanic canaliculus, forming the tympanic plexus, from which emerges the lesser petrosal nerve, running typically um, through the foramen ovale and to the otic ganglion. And it passes with two slender carotico-tympanic branches from the sympathetic plexus running on the internal carotid artery.
Briefly, I'd say the stylopharyngeus, which is the longest <coughs> of the three styloid muscles, arises from the medial surface of the styloid process near its root, running between the internal carotid and the external carotid. Again, pharyngeus is the clue there, to pass obliquely through the pharyngeal wall between the superior and middle constrictors and blending in with the pharynx with the palatopharyngeus with which it's partly inserted, actually, into the epiglottis. And its job is really to lift the larynx and pull the base of the epiglottis upwards and backwards during swallowing and speaking. So the nerve to stylopharyngeus is the only motor branch of the glossopharyngeal, and that's for embryological reasons, as I've said. The carotid sinus nerve connects via its autonomics to the reticular formation. The pharyngeal afferents form with a pharyngeal branch of the vagus, a plexus on the substance of the middle constrictor, the pharyngeal plexus. The tonsillar branch is afferent to the tonsillar mucosa, and a lingual branch is sensory to the posterior tongue, including a few little secretomotor fibres for lingual glands. So that's really about it. Obviously, you can have um, uh, you know, injuries and problems with that glossopharyngeal nerve. One of them is in that space above the origin of the superior constrictor. You can get a tumour in that space between that and the base of the brain, the so-called Muller's space, and that may present with uh, eustachian tube obstruction because the auditory tube runs through there, and glossodynia or palatal palsy uh, and uvular palsy. Uh, so that's a way that those particular tumours can present. Um, I wanted to include just a little something about the vagus and then the accessory and hypoglossal, and we can finish it off then. The nuclei of the vagus are in the upper medulla. They are branchial, visceral, both afferent and efferent, and somatic afferents as well. The branchial motor fibres are from the nucleus ambiguous, as everything comes from that for that region, innovating all the skeletal muscles of 10, which are the muscles of the pharynx, the upper esophagus, the larynx, the palate, and also provided by the cranial accessory fibres which join uh, the 10th nerve there. I'll come back to that point. The dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, that's below the vagal trigone, supplies cardiac and smooth muscle of the bronchi and also of the gut. The nucleus of the tractor solitarius receives afferent fibres from the heart and thorax and abdominal viscera with a few taste fibres from the epiglottis, possibly some general sensation fibres from parts of the pharynx and larynx may make their way to the spinal nucleus of the trigeminal. And there's also a small so-called auricular branch of 10 which may relay here mastoid process and the external auditory meatus, a little sensory component, and that arrives via the tympanomastoid fissure supplying the lower half of the tympanic membrane and the outer aspect there at that level of the external auditory meatus. The vagus then leaves the surface of the medulla as a series of very delicate rootlets in the sulcus between the olive and the inferior cerebellar peduncle, just below the ninth nerve. So it's just in sequence there. The nerves become one just above the eleventh nerve in the middle compartment of the jugular foramen, perforating the arachnoid. There's a small superior ganglion and a longer inferior ganglion distending the nerve just below the skull base. The superior ganglion has the cell bodies for the meningeal and auricular branches that I've already mentioned. 
and the inferior ganglion lodges the cell bodies of all the other sensory fibres in ten. At the inferior ganglion, the eleventh nerve gives all of its nucleus ambiguous fibres to ten. So that's the cranial component of the accessory nerve. And it kind of mimics the way the motor root of a spinal nerve joins just distal to a sensory dorsal root ganglion in the spinal cord, if, if you can believe the kind of homo homology. And these fibres obviously are wholly motor to skeletal muscle. That's the cranial component of the accessory. The superior ganglion, therefore just to reiterate, contains cell bodies of general somatic afferent fibres. And just external to the foramen is the inferior, that's the jugular foramen, is the inferior ganglion containing visceral afferent cells. The branches in the neck include meningeal branches, auricular and carotid body branches. There's a pharyngeal branch, as we've said, which is motor and sensory, which passes between the internal and external carotid. So everything with the word pharynx on it passes between the internal and external carotid. The pharyngeal branch of the vagus, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the stylopharyngeus. There's also a superior laryngeal branch, which runs deep to the carotid and divides into an external laryngeal branch, piercing the thyrohyoid membrane to supply the mucosa of the pharynx and larynx, and the external laryngeal nerve also innervates the cricothyroid muscle. And then there's an internal laryngeal nerve, so the superior laryngeal dividing into external and internal. The internal laryngeal nerve pierces the thyrohyoid membrane into the piriform recess. And so these are then innervating sensory, the area uh, above the cords. The cervical and cardiac branches come from the vagus here. These are upper and lower on the right and lower on the left. And they join the deep part of the cardiac plexus with the upper one on the right joining the superficial cardiac plexus. We'll get into greater detail on that when we do the thoracic plexi in a thoracic uh, podcast. Uh, the right recurrent laryngeal nerve, or the recurrent laryngeal nerves are next, obviously. The right recurrent laryngeal nerve hooks around the subclavian artery into the tracheoesophageal groove under the inferior constrictor to supply the intrinsic muscles of the larynx and the laryngeal mucosa below the vocal folds. On the left, as we know in the thorax, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve hooks around the ligamentum arteriosum by running around the aortic arch. And both the vagus and the recurrent laryngeal nerve give off cardiac branches in the chest, and the main nerves also give off tracheal and esophageal branches, forming the esophageal plexi in front of and behind the esophagus before becoming the anterior and posterior vagal trunks. That's an archetypal structure, but there's some variation here. The branches to the gut and its derivatives are motor, as we know, this is of the vagus, to smooth muscle, and secretor motor to glands, but they don't carry pain afferents. From the abdominal viscera, these pain fibres actually run in the sympathetic fibres, and they're complicated as the vagus is sensory to the thoracic viscera, esophagus, trachea and lungs, but does have some pelvic organ afferents, and we're not going to particularly discuss that here. But that's the complexity of the vagus. It's giving rise to cardiac plexus branches, meningeal, auricular and carotid body branches, a pharyngeal branch, as we've said, the superior laryngeal nerve, which becomes external and internal, and the recurrent laryngeal nerve, plus a whole host of other thoracic, esophageal and mediastinal branches. 
As lesions go, the recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy is obviously the commonest thing, and we've spoken about that at great length and its prevention in another uh, podcast. I think it was AHN2 on the neck viscera. But the recurrent laryngeal nerve is obviously the commonest problem, and this particularly occurs after thyroid surgery, but also any surgery of the neck or the esophagus, heart and lung, particularly one that we used to see this with, is the oranger transhiatal esophagectomy, where the esophagus is pulled up for esophageal cancer and it blindly pulls off the left recurrent laryngeal nerve as well. On clinical examination, the paralysed palate pulls the uvula towards the normal side. We've gone through, in another podcast, uh, AHN2, the difference between a recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy and a cadaveric um, uh, cord. So we're coming finally to the accessory nerve and the hypoglossal nerve, number 11. That has, as we know, cranial and spinal roots. The cranial root is really part of 10, I think of it more that way, handing over all of its supply to the somatic muscles of the pharynx and palate. Uh, This is, of course, the uh, supply of the palatoglossus. Uh, So not to think of the palatoglossus as a glossal muscle, uh, but more as a palatal muscle, the uh, descending palati would be another way of uh, uh, thinking of it rather than thinking of it as a glossal muscle and this is supplied or innovated by the pharyngeal plexus. To get back to the cranial accessory, the fibres come from the nucleus ambiguous, leaving the medulla as a um, series of rootlets uh, below those of the 10th uh, nerve between the olive and the inferior cerebellar peduncle uniting into a single cranial root, joined by the spinal root coming up via the foramen magnum into the pontine cistern. The spinal root forms by cell bodies as the spinal accessory nucleus in the anterior horn of the upper five or six cervical segments, mainly really C234. And they don't leave the anterior horn, but they emerge behind the denticulate ligament as a series of rootlets, which uh, then form a single nerve to join the cranial nerve root. Why it's like that, I think it's hard to understand why the cranial and spinal accessories have developed, uh, in a sense, together from an embryologic point of view. In point of fact, these two roots really have sort of nothing to do with each other, passing together through the jugular foramen before parting company for different functions. The 11th nerve lies caudal to the 10th, as I've said, on the occiput, passing through the middle compartment of the jugular foramen and piercing the arachnoid and dura. The tenth uh, nerve is medial, just in front of the jugular bulb. The cranial 11 gives off all of its muscular fibres, as I've said, from the nucleus ambiguous here to the striated muscle of the pharynx, soft palate, esophagus and larynx. And in the neck, 11, of course, is wholly motor and wholly spinal, and it lies over the lateral mass of the atlas on the internal jugular vein, passing into the sternocleidomastoid and then descending over the levator scapulae to innovate also the trapezius. And we've been through this, I think, in segment three, the head and neck three, the scalene muscles and the accessory nerve is discussed, uh, including variations of the accessory nerve. One may think of the nucleus ambiguous fibres perhaps as mixed, analogous to the motor root of five, so that the cranial accessory is no more really than a motor root to the striated muscle, uh, only combining with 10. It's one way of thinking of it. 
the hypoglossal nerve. The hypoglossal nucleus is medullary with motor somatic nuclei lying in the floor of the fourth ventricle in the twelfth trigone, as it's called, with fibres passing ventrally out between the olive and the pyramid, joining into two roots which enter the hypoglossal canal, or the so-called anterior condylar canal of the occipital bone, and we've considered that in the structure of the hypoglossal canal in an earlier podcast. And this passes forwards, that's the hypoglossal nerve, above the atlanto-occipital joint as a single nerve now, which pierces the arachnoid and dura. It's more lateral, and it spirals behind the inferior ganglion of 10, and then over the common carotid bifurcation. It lies below the posterior belly of the digastric on the three arteries, occipital, external carotid, and lingual. And here's quite superficial. It's only covered by the facial vein and the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. It follows the pathway of migration of the suboccipital myotomes, forming the muscles of the tongue. And it runs deep to mylohyoid on the substance of the hyoglossus, and it supplies all the intrinsic muscles of the tongue and all the extrinsics, except, as I've said, palatoglossus. It's held down typically at the bifurcation of the carotid by the sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery, which is also something that we went through in the um, um, uh, vasculature um, uh, podcast. Branches before it reaches the tongue are all derived, actually, from the C1 nerve fibres, which join it at the hypoglossal canal. The fibres from the 12th nucleus have no supply outside the tongue. There is a meningeal branch for the supply of dura mater in the posterior cranial fossa, near the foramen magnum. The upper root, of course, of the ansa cervicalis, that's the superior root of C1 and the inferior root of C2 and 3, are embedded in the anterior felt work of the carotid sheath in front of the internal jugular vein, and that supplies the sternothyroid, typically C123, the omohyoid, the same C123, and the sternothyroid C23. The slender nerve to thyrohyoid is a definitive C1, and that comes off as the main nerve leaves on the lingual artery, and also the last branch to geniohyoid is C1, and that's given off in the mouth above the mylohyoid with the last of the C1 fibres travelling along the 12th nerve. Lesions, of course, here lead to tongue muscle wasting ipsilaterally with deviation um, towards the affected side. Now, the final area that we've got, I think, uh, is just to mention the next um, uh, podcast, uh, which is pushing on really into a kind of recap of the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossa. So that's for next time. (laughs) 